Well, if you're up on Facebook, I gave you a little review of what we were getting into. Put that up this morning. But for those who were not seeing that, it didn't seem like too many people did. But it seems that in today's society, either people want to fight over everything, or they insist that all battles of doctrine are wrong. And we should give them up for the good of Christian unity. The Bible points out that there are useless disputes when Paul exhorts Timothy about about such things. That's over in uh, 1 Timothy 6 and 4. But there's also whole passages that deal with contending for the faith. And this entire book of Jude is pretty much about contending for the faith. If you look at most people who uh, put little quick reviews up about the book of Jude, you will see contending for the faith coming up as one of the top things. So how are we to contend for the faith, stand for the truth, or expose what is false and even evil if our main goal is all to be united? So we're going to be taking a look at that as we study this book of Jude as its main theme is contending for the faith, standing against the evil. They had many false teachers that were coming out and coming against the things of truth, and Jude is there to contend with them. Now, as we look here tonight, we're only going to go to uh, the first two verses. But there was a question that was posed by someone over the last uh, number of weeks about uh, Michael the Archangel. And as I was digging into that particular question and about uh, Satan, I uncovered some interesting aspects of that. And so when we get to the part of Michael the Archangel, we will be getting into that particular question that was asked about him, about Satan, and some of the things about these these two in their position. Now Jude has been called the Acts of the Apostates. I thought that was kind of a cute phrase. <laughs> the Acts of the Apostates. So we have the Acts of the Apostles and Jude would be the Acts of the Apostates. But this letter is addressed to a general audience. Paul's letters a lot of times were addressed to a uh, specific location. The saints at Ephesus, the saints at Galatia, the saints at Corinth. He's generally writing to people in a specific location. <clears throat> this one is more defined by the spiritual conditions than the physical location. And we see that here in the beginning. He is writing to those who are called, loved, and preserved. Those who are called, loved, and preserved. The last two are in the perfect tense. And we'll be talking about what that means here, but here in verse 1, let's read it. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in, in Jesus Christ. Now Jude, the name Jude, is actually the name Judas. It is translated Jude in many places, but if you go back to the Greek spelling, and even here in the book of, of Jude, he spells his name uh, as just transliterating for you, J-U-D-A-S, Judas, but it's translated Jude. So don't think that Jude and Judas are any different name. They are the same name, kind of like Pete and Peter. Judas was a very common name, mostly because of Judas Maccabeus. He died in 160 B.C. He was a leader of the Jewish resistance against Syria. You remember Syria is the king of the north. This was during the Maccabean revolt. <clears throat> So Judas became a very, very common name. Jesus was a pretty common name. John was a pretty common name. 
It may not be as common for us, Judas, anymore, but it was very much for them because it was one of their heroes. You know, just like when we have a hero that comes up, people tend to name their kids after him. This is the brother of, of James, and of course that would make him the brother of Jesus. He doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. He identifies himself as the bondservant of Jesus and the brother of James. Either let people figure it out from there, but he's not not going on and claiming Jesus is my brother, therefore listen to me or anything like that. Now do remember that none of his brothers believed in him when he was here. That would include Judas. So Judas rejected Jesus as Messiah while Jesus was here on the earth and came over to the other side, <laughs> to the to the good side, shall we say, afterwards. So he says, Judas, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called. The word here for called is the Greek word, and I apologize, I left that in the Greek in your outline. I didn't see that until afterwards. So if you want to, you want to spell that out for you, but it's kletos. The word is used to describe those that were invited to a banquet or called to some office, divinely selected or appointed. Now called, it's used here as an adverb. The English word called is used over 240 times in the New Testament. Of those 240 times, mostly it is the verb kaleo. Or there's a noun that is similar to this as well. It's either kaleo or there's a whole lot of derivatives of kaleo. You can put a prefix in front of it and get a whole new word. And that's what you'll see if you go up and look it up in Vines. You're going to see most of the references for this is some kind of derivative of the word kaleo, which is basically just to call out or to, to uh, you know, hey, come on over and get, just call it out to somebody. That's what this word is. But this is as a verb. We're looking at it as an adverb. This is where it's describing something. It's describing the saints, the called ones. So the ones that he is particularly describing are those that are called. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now this um, this word, since we didn't have too many occurrences, there's only 11 occurrences of this word in the New Testament. One being here in this verse in Jude. Two are in Matthew. I gave you one reference to it. But in Matthew 20 and verse 16, So the last will be first... In the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now notice this word is used for the larger masses. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now if you just look at it from that standpoint, Jude is writing to those who are called. He didn't write it to those who are chosen. That would have cut down the numbers. And maybe I could say, well, I know I was called. I'm not sure if I was, I was uh, selected or chosen yet. But he just, he used the word called here, those that are called, and more are called than are chosen. Now this particular verse comes at the end of a parable, which you all will remember. It is the parable where he went out and went to the marketplace and he found some workers early in the morning. And he said, come on in, I'll, I'll pay you a day's wage in the, a Daenerys. So they agreed and they uh, hopped on the truck or wherever, whatever it was that he had. <laughs> and they, uh, they took him on over to the field and then a little while later he went out and found some more workers there and he brought them on over. And he said, just come on with me, I'll, I'll pay you a, a fair wage. And so he did that again and several other times until the last time he went out was an hour before the quitting time. 
and then he called them all up and he says, all right, now we're going to, to pay you. And instead of starting with the ones that he hired last, he started with those that he hired, or he started paying those that he hired last, even though he started those working, the ones that were first. So the ones who worked first, even though they've been there longest, now have to wait until everyone else is paid before they get paid. That, that just doesn't seem right. I mean, if you've been there all day and these guys only been there an hour, make them wait. <laughs> but he didn't do that. Of course, he did it for a purpose. He wanted them to see what these other folks were getting paid. And so those that came up, uh, who, who came in last, only worked an hour, they got paid at Daenerys. And the next group, they got paid at Daenerys. The next group, they got paid at Daenerys, all the way on down to the last group. And they're, they're thinking, wow, he's paying at Daenerys to all these people. We've been here the longest. Surely he's going to pay us more. Didn't dawn on them that he uh, paid a Daenerys to the one who came for an hour, one who came for three hours, one who came for five, six hours, and right on down, he gave them all exactly the same. But in their mind, they began to piece together some things, we should get some more. And so at the the end, they got their Daenerys, and they were upset. And they said, how come we bore the, the heat of the sun all day working in your fields? And you're going to give us the same amount you gave to them? And of course, the master said, well, I'm not doing you any harm. Uh, we agreed when we first met that you would come on out and work for a day and I'd give you a Daenerys. I, that's the only one he gave an amount to was, was that one. And so I've given you a Daenerys. If I want to be generous and pay these much these guys as much as you, that's up to me. And then Jesus throws this thing in. For many are called, but few are chosen. So many were called into the field to come into work. But if you are going to choose some to go in for the next day or to do anything beyond this, how many are you going to choose guys with the attitude of the people that were last here? <laughs> Probably not. So this is uh, this is where this is thrown in. He does this again later on after another, another teaching. Uh, a few chapters uh, after this. But for many are called and few are chosen. So just keep in mind that the called is the larger group. So Jude is using a term that can be used for the larger group. It's not used for everybody because not everybody came out to the field. Not everybody came into the field to work. Not everybody was in the marketplace. Maybe if they were in the marketplace, they went home before the guy came back and, and got some more. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Here he was called to be an apostle. Now, there are many people who could be called to be apostle. It doesn't mean that they will be separated for that ministry. Paul was separated for that ministry. He had done those, those things necessary. Further down in chapter 6, or verse 6, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are the called of Jesus Christ, and you are called to be saints. So those that are believers are called to be saints. In verse 28 of chapter 8, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Just looking at this compared to what Jesus said, He uses the term for the larger group, called. Not just those that are chosen. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1-2, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and 
Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God who is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and and ours. So Paul, called to be an apostle, again we're using this term for those that are called into a particular office. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called. Now you could be in the, the Jewish category, you could be in the Greek category. You know, the Gentile category. It didn't matter. Whether you were Jew or Greek made no difference. It made a difference that you were called. And God called those that were Jews and He called those that were Greeks. Revelation seventeen fourteen. These will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them for He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. Well, if you made it this far and you're with Him going into the battle, not only are you called, you are chosen and you are faithful. That should be pretty pretty obvious. So this is the word that is used here. This is the word called. That is all all its uses in the New Testament as an adverb to describe a certain group of people. Those that are called. I put this note in your outline. Do we see ourselves as the called or just ones who chose salvation? Sometimes people can be in the church following after God and we just I just see myself as one who chose salvation. Salvation. I chose to be saved. I chose God. But do you see yourself as one who is called? Do you see yourself as one that God put out a call to? That's something that we need to do. Now he goes on with this. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. This word here, sanctified, there's a um, disagreement on this word. There are some manuscripts that have this word as agape. The word sanctified is not very different from the word agape. Um, I I forget the numbers now. I was going to write them down and I didn't. I believe the word agape is something like uh, the number, the strongest number on it. It's pretty high up because it begins with with an A, of course. And it's around 25, 28, something like that. Well, this particular word is only about 10 words down from it. Because it also begins with an A. Uh, it begins with an A, but it has a different breathing mark on it, so it changes the A to more of an H sound. <clears throat> and sometimes we, we look at those words when they're, when they're spelled in English, and we would spell it with an H, but it didn't start with an H, it started with an A. And so there's a lot of times you'll see that in the, in the Greek. That's why it's just easier to see the word spelled out in, for me anyway. It's easier to see the word spelled out in Greek than to get confused with the English. English letters that uh, are put in there. Now, normally, I don't like the Nestle's text. I still don't like the Nestle's text. I don't like where it came from. I don't like the this, the, the translations that just base it exclusively off of that. But there are some other manuscript, manuscripts beside Nestle's that also have this as the word agape. And those manuscripts I have a little more confidence in than, than Nestle's. In, the, in just the context of this, Using that as a case, going back over here, let me read read this verse again. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Is the calling that we have based on anything that we do? No, it's based on what God does, right? Is sanctification based on anything that we do? Yes, it is. We have to sanctify ourselves. 
there's something we need to do to get sin out of our life. God doesn't just do it. So it would seem to me that it fits better here just from the context of the word overall for it to be agape than to be the word for sanctify. Because as I am called, I am loved. Not because of what I did, but because of what God decided to do. Just as the same way as as called. So to those who are called, loved by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So these three things, these are the three things that are qualifying those that he wrote this letter to. So this letter is to anyone who is called, loved, and preserved. So that that can uh, not only be anyone who lived in that area that was born again, anywhere around that area in any, any place of the inhabited world, but it also would continue on to us. This letter is certainly written to us because we're called, we're loved, and we're preserved. So this, this book is for us. And all the things that go with it. Now his word there, preserved, I gave you a reference there, and that particular reference actually goes in the section below, but I didn't... Uh, Somehow I left that up there and didn't move it down. But anyway, John chapter 17, verse 11 reads this. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. This is Jesus' prayer over the disciples and all those who would come and believe after them. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Keep through your name. That word there, keep, is our word preserved. So he is praying, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. This is that that preservation. Now here in this verse, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now the the Greek breakdown on this really helps to understand a, a lot of this. But uh, we're going to go through different parts of it. First off, the uh, this particular word preserved expresses a watchful care and is suggestive of a present possession. That I am presently in possession of this, this particular thing. Preserved, I, can, I have it right now. It's in my possession. That's what this word is suggesting. It's used in the perfect participle in that we are guarded with the present and permanent result that we are the object of his permanent and watchful care. We are guarded with the present and permanent result that we are the objects of his permanent and watchful care. It comes from the Greek word tereo. It means to guard, to hold firmly, and to watch or to keep. To guard, to hold firmly, to watch or to keep. This word is used a, a lot of different places in the word. In particular, you will see this word used of the guards who watched Jesus on the cross. They were there to watch him. That's, uh, I believe the word is actually translated into English, watch there. But it's the same word that is used. They were there to make sure that by their power and their authority, they were able to keep Jesus, first off, on the cross, and secondly, everyone else away. That was their goal. That was what they were told. They were to make sure that none of the people around would try and come over and take him off the cross and rescue him. And so they had to use their authority as a Roman soldier, but they also had to use their power. 
because if you had people who came along who didn't respect that authority, they expected their soldiers to use the power that they had. So they, you know, they got strong guys. They didn't get weak guys, they got strong guys. And if you're going to put somebody into a position of guard, you're going to make sure that they have the physical capability to hold off a group of people who might come and try and take them down. So they might have thought that some of his disciples might have gotten uh, together and made a run for it to going up there and to take him down off the cross and thereby preserve his life or something like that. So they were armed with spears and swords and things that they might need to um, to be able to do this. Now, obviously, they weren't too concerned because while they were watching Jesus and had this command, they were over there gambling for his uh, stuff. You know, throwing the... Uh, uh, dice or whatever it was to see who got his, his cloak because they didn't want to rip that. But the rest of the stuff, they just divided among themselves and said, well, we'll just keep this. Even though mom is sitting right there. Uh, if anyone, she's got a right to it. But nope, uh, they don't give it to her. They they kept all the stuff themselves. But that's one of the places where this is used. Now, this comes right out of the book of Vines. It says, the aorist or point tense regards the continuous preservation of the believer as a single completed act without reference to the time occupied in its accomplishment. Now, that's a lot of words there. I just kind of pulled that out and gave it to you just as they had it. Maybe not everybody has vines at home, or if you do, uh, if you didn't want to, maybe you didn't want to go look it up. But if you looked up this word, this is what you'll find there. That the uh, past tense particular past tense that is used here regards the continuous preservation of the believer as a single complete act. It's not a continual ongoing act. It's a single complete act without reference to the time occupied in its accomplishment. So it's one complete act. doesn't matter if that preservation went over a span of 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever number of years that went on. It has no regard to how long that preservation continues. It is one complete act and it just keeps on going on and having that um, that effect. That's just another way of talking about the perfect tense and how it is a past completed action with present and continual results. Now the guards, using go back to that example, they were not expected to keep a storm or an earthquake away. That is not within their power or authority. We know that an earthquake did come and the guards would not have been held responsible for that because they don't have the authority by the Roman government to stop earthquakes. As strong as these guys might be, they don't have the physical power to stop an earthquake. When a storm began to build, they don't have the power to stop a storm. None of these things were in their expectation that they were supposed to do as far as watching and and preserving Whatever it is that they were, all they had to do was make sure that the people didn't come over and get Jesus and that Jesus didn't get down off the cross and that he stayed there until he died. That was their role. That was their job. That's all they needed to do. Sometimes we see that there were guards that were put over uh, Peter or Paul when they were in prison and they had the responsibility of watching over them to make sure that they stayed in the, um, the prison. When Peter was let out by the angel, remember the guards were questioned. And, uh, in fact, we just read that in our daily chapter reading. The guards were questioned about uh, where'd they go, how'd they get out of your care. 
And after they questioned him, I guess they didn't like their answers, and they took him out and killed him. Because they felt like this was within your scope of what you can do. This is within your power. This is in your authority. You should have been able to stop this. And they were not able to, to stop it. Now it goes on here and... Oh, I forgot to go over this, but because of the Greek case used... There's a, there's a certain cases and when, when Greek uses a case, you have to take that case and go back to the, the, the other cases that are in the sentence and you can tr- pretty much tell who is being referred to here. So the preservation, we can tell exactly who, who is doing it. So because of the Greek case that is used of God the Father and Jesus Christ, the preserving is done by the Father, keeping or guarding them for the Son. That doesn't come out in the English version of it. Of course, you could translate it that if you get like an expanded translation. Uh, Amplified might even uh, put that in there and, and there. I didn't check theirs. But if you get some of those ones that get a little more wordy to try and uh, describe things, then you'll see this. It is God the Father that is doing the preserving. It is not Jesus Christ that is doing the preserving. It is God the Father that is doing the preserving. And he's preserving the saints for his son, Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of it. So that's quite a bit he wrote there in just that little intro. But then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now just to, I didn't want to break into a whole thing on mercy and peace and love. So I began to, I got this idea. I says, I just want to get something succinct to determine the mercy, the peace, and the, and the love here. And to, to keep it simple in our mind. So I actually went over to the internet and I did a, a search. I said, you know, to try and find, surely somebody out there has given us just kind of a, a one-line definition on mercy as far as the, the gospel is concerned or, you know, viewpoint from the work. I couldn't find one that, that worked. I just found, you know, preaching sermons and stuff like that. And that's not what I was looking for. So I just kind of sat back and, and let it come to me. So I put this, I just gave you a blank line. You can write this in there if you want to. I put this down for mercy. Enjoying the goods someone else earned. Enjoying the good someone else earned while missing the bad we earned. That is only interrupted when the someone else sees us as ungrateful or unresponsive. Enjoying the good someone else earned while missing the bad we earned that is only interrupted when the someone else sees us as ungrateful or unresponsive. The mercy of God continues to pour out for me good, beneficial things that Jesus Christ earned for me. I continue to stand in that mercy. I don't receive the bad that I deserve because I was born into sin. I have sinned. I therefore deserve some some judgment for that. But I don't get that as long as I stand in this area of mercy. And that mercy continues to be poured out on me and I enjoy the good that someone else earned while missing the bad that I earned. And the only way that it's going to be interrupted is when the someone else, the one who earned the good, sees me as ungrateful or unresponsive. Now, it doesn't happen immediately, does it? There's a, a lot of times, you know, most of us have some young kids in our life 
that are, are near and dear to us. And they have a, we have an especial affection, whether they were born to, to us, born to our kids, or just born near us, or we just know them. I mean, sometimes those little kids can just get in your life and they just got that smile and, you know, they're just a neighbor kid, but boy, I tell you what, <laughs> they come on over and, and I just want to do stuff for them. And you're pouring out mercy and you love doing this because it just seems like that little, little child is just, just loving it. But every once in a while, a child gets to be a child and sometimes it seems like they don't appreciate it. They just expect it. When they stop appreciating it and just expect it, it may throw you back a little bit, but it doesn't make you stop. It makes you kind of want to point out, you know, <laughs> you always want to be grateful when people do things for you. And a lot of times that's all a little little kid needs. And uh, immediately they go back into the grateful mode and uh, that usually fixes things. But you don't shut it off right then. God doesn't shut it off just because we became ungrateful for a time. That mercy continues to pour out. You can see that in the, in the Bible as God's mercy continued to pour out on Israel even though they were rebellious. Not just ungrateful, but all out rebellious. And His mercy continued to be poured out on them. They did not get the bad they deserved. Now, they weren't getting all the good. A lot of that good was being, uh, was being pulled back. But that didn't happen immediately. But mercy, it can become interrupted when someone else, the one who earned these things, sees us as ungrateful or unresponsive. By unresponsive, I mean they come and they begin to, to point out, hey, you're, you're, you're walking in the wrong direction here. You're not doing the right things with the things that I'm blessing you with. Maybe you're giving them some money and they're not doing the right things with it. Well, that makes you want to pull back on the money that you're, you're giving them. But if you give them that correction and they make the correction in their life and they become responsive to that, well, then you continue to pour out that mercy upon them. But if they're not responsive, this is what can, can get us to stop. So he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Peace, I wrote this down for it, accepting the state or condition God is in regardless of the state or condition we are in. Accepting the state or condition God is in regardless of the state or condition we are in. However God is, so are we in this world. Is I believe how James put it. As He is, so are we in this world. I accept His condition for where He is in my life, regardless of the conditions that are going on around me. Now, a lot of times people want the conditions that are around me to become peaceful in order for me to become peaceful. But that's not Bible peace. Bible peace is it surpasses understanding. How in the world can you be at peace when all, when all this stuff is going on around you? But that's how we can do it. Because we accept the state or condition that God is in. God, how are you right now? And he, how He is has no bearing on what state we're in. What place, what place we are. You know, turmoil, unrest, whatever it might be, has no, no effect upon God. And so I can choose to let His peace, the conditions that He has, come down upon me, even though all this stuff is going on all around. Great example of that is Stephen. Stephen was uh, there. All, all these people are hating on him, throwing all kinds of accusations against him. Then they start throwing rocks at him. And he's just 
Oh, there's God up in heaven. <laughs> Hi, God. I'll see him just a little bit. <laughs> he just seems to be very much at peace in the whole thing. And then he even says, uh, don't hold this against him. So mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, love is actions and thoughts of caring and affection toward another without consideration of their merit or the benefit returned. I'll give you all that again. But it's actions and thoughts of caring. Actions and thoughts of caring and affection toward another without consideration of their merit or the benefit return. I don't consider, did this person merit my uh, my actions or my thoughts of caring? My actions or my thoughts of affection. Did they merit it? Did they earn it? Don't even bring that into the equation. Does not even figure in. This is the kind of love that we're discussing here. Actions and thoughts of caring and affection toward another without consideration of their merit or the benefit returned. Now that's how God loved us. God didn't love us because we earned it, because there was any merit in us. He just loved on us because of who He was. He didn't love on us because He was going to get something great. He had no guarantee on what He was going to get. But He loved on us anyway. And in some instances, He got exactly what He wanted. In other instances, He didn't get what He wanted or what He was hoping for. But it still didn't interfere with him having that love. Actions and thoughts of caring and affection toward another. Understand that God's thoughts towards us are, they're kind, they're, they're good thoughts. He's got good thoughts about us. The enemy wants to tell us that God's thinking bad thoughts about us, but God's thinking good thoughts about us. He has actions and thoughts of caring and an affection toward us without consideration of our merit, or the benefit returned. Now the enemy likes to get the love that we have and to get it turned so that I begin to, well, I don't think they've earned my love. I don't think uh, they really are deserving of me having a loving, uh, having kind actions, having affectionate thoughts. I don't think that they've earned that. I'm kind of angry with them. And so we, we kind of move away from that. Or we think about, well, I've been loving on this person for a long time. I don't see that it's really benefited me. I don't feel that I've gotten any better or that they're doing anything for me here. And we can kind of get away from it. But he says, let's read the verse again. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In order for something to be multiplied to me, there's something I have to do, isn't it? I must sow it. Nothing gets multiplied to me until I sow it. There's no 30, 60, 100 fold until there is a sowing. So if I'm not sowing mercy, if I'm not sowing peace, if I'm not sowing love, guess what? There's a whole lot of Christians want to go around there stirring up strife. That's not good. We don't want to be out here stirring up strife. We don't, a lot of Christians are going out there not loving on people the way they're supposed to be loving on people. Loving on people, well, as, as it benefits them. If I'm going to love people as it benefits them, then I'm going to reap love that benefits others. But if I want to reap the love that God has, I gotta sow the love that God has. 
So he says, love, peace, or mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. We need those things in our life. Staying in the stream of mercy. Not getting what I deserve, but getting what Jesus Christ earned for me. Staying in that stream means I got to be operating in the same way. If I want to receive this from God, I got to make sure that I keep this up with other people. Because if I can get into the God stream of things and God is pouring His love and His peace and His mercy into my life, that's a far stronger uh, amount coming into my life than I could ever put out. But if I get to a place where I begin to uh, get miserly about what I want to give out, then that that huge thing coming into my life is going to get cut off. I'm not going to get as much. It's not going to be multiplied to me. Maybe it's added to me instead of multiplied. I like multiplied better. Multiplied is a is a nicer way to go. You know, 10 times 10 is a far greater reward than 10 plus 10. We like the multiplication. So we want to make sure that we stay in that way. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now the main question we want to take a look at here is in this area of the preservation. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. We look at that term, preserved in Jesus Christ, and we can get an idea of things I ought to be preserved from. What do we expect God to preserve us from? What do we expect God to keep us from? What do we expect God to, to be on guard for us from? And are those expectations actually legitimate? Because a lot of times people are out there and they're expecting God to do some things. I, ex- I didn't expect God would let this happen to me. You ever heard that one? I expected to be preserved from those things going on. And sometimes we've gotten some pretty crazy expectations on this. And just because the Word of God says that He's able to do more, exceedingly more than I can think or imagine, doesn't mean that anything I think or imagine is something He's going to do. He may be able to do it, but I've got to have some faith, something to, to say, God, you, you and your Word said this, therefore I can believe that this is going to happen. So I put three things in, in here for you. I gave you some space if you want to write them in. Three things. To help us in this expectation. Developing these expectations. First, it must be something within his authority. It must be something within his authority. Now at first glance you might think, well what in the world is not in his authority? Well there are some things that are not under the authority of God. If everything was under the authority of God, everybody would be saved. But he doesn't force people to make the decision to, um, to become saved. If he doesn't make them, force them to make that decision then his authority is not what's going to be used to cause people to make decisions in favor of us or things that we like. I cannot call on that um, that authority to change people's uh, the way that they're dealing with me. If he won't use it to change the way that they're dealing with him, then he's not going to use it to change it the way they're dealing with you. So we have to stay inconsistent with there. So it must be something within his authority. 
And we learn about what His authority is used for by reading the Word of God. Number two, second thing. It must be something He said He would do with His power. There must, it must be something He said that He would do with His power. What did He say He would do? So we have to go through the Word of God and find out, did you say that you would do this? And if He said that He would do it, then I can stand on, on those particular things. And say, well, okay, well, you said this, therefore, and you'll see that a lot of times in the New Testament with the Gospels and the, the miracles of Jesus, that people saw that He did this. Well, if He did that, He could probably do this. If people went up and touched the hem of His garment, then maybe if I just sneak up on them and touch the hem of His garment. <laughs> These are things that, that, that worked for them to bring about a change. Now we saw people walking on water, but there's nothing in His Word that says, ask and you shall walk on water. <laughs> so I have to make sure that it's something that He said that He would do with His power and empower me. So first, it must be something within His authority. Second, it must be something He said He would do with His power. And third, <clears throat> is the idea of preservation, the, the idea of preservation must line up with His. My idea of preservation must line up with His. I should put it that way. My idea of preservation must line up with his. So how was Jesus preserved? Well, was Jesus preserved from people making up lies about him? He was not preserved from that, so that cannot be something that is going to be in the in that scope. Was he preserved from people uh, persecuting him? No, he was not preserved from that. So, so we have to understand that. Now, he was preserved from people killing him until the time came for him to die. And then he was not preserved from that. He said, my time has not come. When his time came, that was a different story. Now, Paul, was Paul preserved from people hating him? Jesus wasn't preserved from people hating him. Jesus wasn't preserved from people betraying him. Jesus wasn't preserved from people forsaking him, walking away. That happened to, to Jesus. It happened to Paul. Probably happened to a lot more people that uh, just didn't get the chance to write about it. But if they had a chance, they might have. So the idea of preservation has to line up with his. If, if Paul wasn't spared from it, you know, if we're on a ship going to the mission field and uh, encounter a storm and it looks like the ship's going down. Well, I call on the God who preserved Paul from shipwreck. Wait a minute. That doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Paul wasn't preserved from shipwreck. He went down on a couple of ships. Now, that one we had the, the most detail on, he was on, he wasn't going to preserve from the ship being wrecked, but he was going to be preserved and all the people on board and they were going to get to safety. But they had to go do some swimming. And nobody walked on water that night. They all had to swim in the water and or grab a hold of some pieces of the boat. Paul told them how to do it. If you can swim, get out now. <laughs> if, if you can't, wait for the boat to get wrecked, get some pieces and float on in. <laughs> Get the direction how to do it. And said, God's going to show up. So if he's going to preserve us, I have to have the understanding of how he preserved others 
and be expecting the same thing. Paul lists all those things that he went through and then said, thank God, my, my God delivered me from them all. We may look at those things and say, I didn't see that he delivered you from anything. You went through each, each one of those things. But he went through it with peace. He went through it with joy. He went, went through it a lot different than other people would have gone through it. And this is what we have to understand. There are some things I am going to go through, but going through them I am still preserved. And going back to the first verse, I am preserved by God the Father who's preserving me for the purpose of keeping me for His Son. Because we are the bride of Christ. And the Father is going to see to it that the bride makes the wedding. We are preserved by God the Father for the Son. Now, keeping that in mind, how many times do we get in trouble? Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, help me out here. Oh, Jesus, help me out here. But who's the, who's the one that Jude is saying is delivering us or preserving us? It's God the Father. And it's, it's not done because I make the request. Why is it done? It's a past action that has continual and present day results. Father God, I thank you that you have preserved me for your Son, Jesus Christ. And then I just can walk on. I don't think Peter, I don't think Paul, or Silas, or Timothy, every time they faced difficulty, got on their knees, oh God, oh God, please help me. I think they saw this, this truth and they walked in it. And they had peace. And I don't have to waste my time asking God to do something for me that He's already said He's done. See, my simple faith in this verse that Jude just throws out here as an introduction, my simple faith in that allows me to walk through stuff. I don't, I don't feel like I have to go through an hour of prayer that I can be preserved. I don't feel like i got to, as they say, birth this thing in prayer. Nope. Don't have to do that. Because I'm in that list there in the beginning. Let's read them again. To those who are called, sanctified, or I'm sorry, loved by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Because of that love the Father has for us. Because He loves us. That love He has for us has had the result that He has done what is necessary to preserve us for His Son. And whatever it is that I'm walking through, whatever it is that's going on around me, i got to have that confidence. Father God, I thank You that this one thing You did in the past has continued to go on. And I and others just like me are preserved. We are preserved in you. And I thank you for it. See, if I feel like i got to travail in prayer every time that something's going on in my life to try and get delivered from it, there's not going to be a whole lot of peace there. I'm not going to be uh, feeling like I'm really walking in that mercy. I'm feeling like I'm getting what I deserved. And a lot of times people go through difficult situations. The enemy comes in and says... <clears throat> Remember you did this? 
Remember you came short over here? This is the result. No. Mercy is being multiplied to me. I'm multiplying mercy. And it's being multiplied to me. Thank God he can give mercy back to me a whole lot faster than I can give it out to other people. So I'll never run out. We can never get to a place where I'm, I'm loving on other people and saying, God, I'm just running out of love. Mm-hmm. These people are just wearing me out. I'm just running out of love. If we're doing that, we're trying to love them on our own. But if I'm loving, loving them with a love that's being multiplied to me, I give out a little bit of love here and it comes back multiplied. When I love, it came back to me. It's, it's, it's mine. If I got it, if it came back to me and it's mine, glory to God. I'm going to use it. I'm going to make sure that I, I take that love that has been multiplied back to me and I find other people to give that love to. I'm going to take that mercy that's been multiplied back to me and find other people to give that mercy to. Because as I give it out to other people, guess what? It gets multiplied back even more. I'm going to give that peace to other people so that peace comes back to me more. The way that we get peace, the way that we get mercy, is by giving it away. I don't pray to God, oh God, have mercy on me. It may be a common prayer. Maybe a thing that people say all the time. Oh God, give me peace. But the way we get it is to find places where we can give it away. And when I need more peace in my life, God will show me situations where I can sow the peace I've got. He'll show me situations where I can sow the mercies I've got so that I can reap more back. Because if I want mercy, if I need more mercy, the only way to get it is to sow it. I need more peace. The only way to get more than what I've got right now is to sow what I have. Who is God going to give more mercy to? Those people that are pouring it out to other other folks. It's just like when you uh, you got those you got the little little child, and you know and you go up and you give that little child a dollar, and that little child takes that dollar. And they're, they're thinking, I'm going to go spend this on something in the store. And they're walking around looking to find. And then they come up to you and says, where's your dollar? Oh, I don't have it. What would you do with it? Well, there was a little boy over there, a little girl over there. And they didn't have anything. And I gave it to them. Mm-hmm. Now, what's that do to you? As a, as a, what do you want to do? Well, no more dollars for you. <laughs> no, here's two. <laughs> here's five. I mean, you just, you just want to, here's, here's some more. <laughs> you, you just want to reward that. You see that kind of action, you say, oh man, this is great. How much more can I give you? And you just want to find opportunities to give them more. That's the same way our Father is. They're the ones He wants to, He wants to keep pouring out more of this mercy to. The more, the more mercy we receive, we look to God and say, God, I just don't deserve all that you're pouring out on me. And guess, yeah, I know you don't. But you know what to do with it when I give it to you. <laughs> and so we go out and we keep on finding more places to put that mercy. Finding more places to put that peace. Finding more places to take that love that He has multiplied back to us and I'm just going to love on other people. I'm not demanding their, they have merit, that they earn it. I'm just looking for people. God, where do, who needs this love? We look around for people that are out there because there's someone. There's people out there that need it. And as I do this, boy, are we opening up some things for ourselves. Good things. And if, this is 
This is so helpful for the rest of this book because if I am walking in a way and I am pouring out the mercy of God and I am pouring out the peace of God and I am pouring out the love of God and that love is all coming back to me, we're in a cycle. As soon as we get involved with these false teachers, that cycle is broken. I begin to feel something. Wait a minute. I'm not feeling that flow. I'm not feeling that. It's, there's something wrong in here. And that should point to us that something wrong has gone on. And so he has set them up here. Here's the flow that you ought to be in. And if you're in the right teaching, and if you're hearing the right things, and understanding God in the right way, this is where you're going to be at. You are a called one. God called you. Called you. Now, not everybody is chosen from those called ones. But, but you got the opportunity here. As the parable went, you got called into the field. Show them what you can do. And everybody showed them what they could do, except for those ones that were called in the beginning. They showed they can grumble and complain. I don't think we're bringing them back the next day. But I got the call. Now, let's show them what I can do. Let's show them that I'm not only one that you're going to want to call, I'm one that you're going to want to be one of those chosen people. Because I know what to do with the mercy that I have. I know what to do with the peace that I have. And I know what to do with the love that God has poured out to me and multiplies to me. Father, I thank you for the way that you work with us, the way that you loved on us, poured mercy out on us when we didn't deserve it, and gave us a peace that passes all understanding. You let us be in the state that you are, regardless of the state that we're in. And I thank you for it. As we continue to look at the book of Jude, we can see how to continue to keep this pattern flowing. To be in the flow. And to be constantly in the increase. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.